Good morning, everyone. <coughs> it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Can you say amen? We've had a wonderful time of worship, the sweet presence of God in our midst, and uh, we believe that God is going to speak to us through His Word. But before that, I uh, just want to mention, uh, remember about a month ago, I was preaching and I brought in a small unripe durian that I picked up, you know, as an illustration. Any of you remember that? Some, okay. Uh, if you forget that, what are you going to remember? <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope it didn't give the impression that now you can bring durians into the, the building <laughs> because our, our ventilation system cannot handle the king of the fruits. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Other fruits are, are fine. All right, just as a matter of consideration. Now, we are going into the book of James or the epistle by... James, the half-brother of Jesus. So would you go to James, and today we want to look at chapter 1, and we will work through this epistle over the weeks. Okay? Now, this short letter, five chapters, was written to Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the known Roman world during that time. And uh, maybe we can show that slide first. Yeah. Huh? Uh, uh, they were scattered all over because of their faith, and uh, they, actually they were already scattered even before that. And so they were going through a hard time, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a respected leader in the church of Jerusalem, and he wrote to encourage them. But his style of writing is a little bit different, actually quite different from most of the other epistles written by Paul. You see, Paul has more of a Western mindset and logic when he argues. He would use linear logic, so you would see, you know, something like he will lay a foundation for a truth, then he will go into point A, B, C, and then he will draw a conclusion from that. Okay? And then he will move on to something else if necessary. And uh, most of his letters were written in answer to questions and problem, dealing with problems in the local churches. Okay. But James writes in a more circular way. His logic is circular in the sense that, you know, it's more Eastern. You know, he will go, he'll, he'll touch on one topic, then he will jump to another topic, and then he'll jump to another topic, and then after he'll run back to this topic, and then he'll go like, you know, it's like going in one circle. So as you read through the book of James, you'll notice that some of the themes are repeated in chapter after chapter. It's like he brings a little bit more detail every time he touches on it. And in many ways, James echoes what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you read through uh, the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, right, you will notice that there are many themes that are exactly drawn from it, okay? So, this was written to Jewish Christians, and uh, many of those Jews, by the way, had some very wrong assumptions of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and uh, that was further expanded and clarified in Deuteronomy 28 to 31, the covenant blessings in particular. So, how did they understand it? Now, even the disciples of Jesus had the same expectation. That is, that because God promised 
to bless obedience, then all who obey Him and who are pious, who live pious lives, will automatically be blessed materially. Which means that, you know, if you live a godly life, you will be rich. And consequently, if you are rich, you must also be godly. It's like backward reasoning, right? It's very simple logic. And all who do good will be rewarded and blessed, and all who do bad will be punished by God in this life itself. That is how the Jews thought throughout that period of time, until the time of Jesus. Now, it's not surprising then that when you read the book of Job, now how many of you have read Job before? Job, okay? It's a bit depressing story, right? Uh, remember this man, he experienced calamity after calamity. And no, no one of us can suffer as much as Job suffered. Huh? He lost all his property in one day. He lost all his children in one day. I think he something like, had about 10 or 12 children. I can't remember. So many, you lost count. <laughs> and then he lost his health. He was left with absolutely nothing. And his friends came to, to comfort him. And this is what they tried to do. They tried to convince him. Job, forsake your sin and God will bless you again. Now, what are they saying to Job? It's because you have sinned against God. That's why you're suffering. There must be some secret sin. Better confess it. As soon as you confess and forsake your sin, then God will turn your fortunes around. But there's one problem. When you read the book of Job, right in the very first chapter, why was Job going through all this suffering? Was it because he had sin in his life or was it because he was a righteous man? Which one? Righteous man. Actually, God was boasting about Job to the devil. You know, have you considered my servant? There's no one like him. You know, he is upright. He fears me. He shuns evil. Where can you find people like that? If God starts to boast about you, it's not always good. <laughs> okay, get ready. <laughs> okay, if God boasts about you to the devil, right? Uh, there's no other case, by the way, so don't worry, okay? This is the only time, right? So his friends, had, his three friends, had a very simple theology. You know, if you do good, you must be blessed. And if you do bad, you must be punished. So since you're being punished, you must be bad. You must be evil. Repent of your evil. Simple theology. But unfortunately, in this case, it was wrong. Okay? Now, Asaph also struggled with this. And he wrote Psalm 73. And he had the same assumptions. And he was frustrated and angry at God because he saw the wicked prospering. And he saw the pious being oppressed by the wicked. So James is going to correct this wrong understanding of the Jewish people. And I think it's not just the Jewish people, by the way. Uh, it's quite universal, you know. Almost everyone you meet will agree, yeah, you know, 
good people are rewarded, bad people are punished, except that we live in a sinful world, right? And you know, the story is not over yet. Okay? So James is going to give us a different perspective, and we want to read verse 2 to 4. And as we read this, I believe God will give us understanding. Let's read out loud. My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete not deficient in anything. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your spirit to come and give us understanding so that as we embrace your truth, we will be strengthened and your purposes in our lives will be fulfilled for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look at this word again. He says, consider nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trial. He didn't say, if you fall into all sorts of trial, which means, what he's telling us? Expect adversity as the rule of life rather than the exception. It's going to happen. And it should not surprise us. Peter says the same thing. This is a, a man very close to Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. When you are going through a trial, you don't need to, to be surprised because it is part of the Christian life. Of course, we're not talking about the kind of trial that you walked into willingly, you know, by making foolish decisions. Even if you, you do everything right in life, there's no guarantee that we will be spared from trials because it's just part of what it means to live in this fallen world. And Jesus said this, the same thing, John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We love that word. Amen? But in the same breath, he says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So, here you have these two opposite conditions put side by side. Jesus says, in me you will, in me you will have peace, but in the world you will have trouble. So, which one do you want? Peace or trouble? You cannot have one <laughs> unless you don't live in this world. <laughs> God, live on the moon. <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble. So what Jesus is saying, in the midst of trouble, you can still have peace. If you have Jesus, you will have peace, even when you are going through trouble. Can I say amen? And this is the blessing of the Christian life because when we are in Jesus, we have peace because He has overcome the world and He lives inside of us. So we don't have to look for adversity. It will come. This is the bad news. We live in a world that has been infected by sin. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And so if your goal in life is to have trouble-free existence, you know, everything smooth, uneventful, 
maybe we should think again. Believers will experience trials because suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's not easy to accept this truth, but once we accept it, it will prepare us to face the challenges ahead, the trials that will come in its own time. We don't know when, but it's just part of living on earth. It may be a financial trial where, you know, you do everything right and still you suffer financial loss. It could be some trouble in the family that no money can solve. It could be your boss suddenly give you trouble in spite of the fact that you work and you do your best or your employees may give you trouble. Trials can come in any form, any shape and size. But the good news is that God is sovereign over all the trials of life. Can you say amen? God is sovereign. And when we know that suffering is a part of God's plan, then we will be better prepared to trust in His sovereign goodness, to trust that God is still good, even when I'm going through suffering, because suffering has a purpose. God will not waste our tears. Amen. It has a, he has a purpose. And that purpose is to allow us to grow. You see, believers will grow from trials. You see, this picture of the tree, you know, it's being blown by the wind and it's still standing up strong. Do you know the strongest trees are the ones that have to survive in a climate or in a place where the winds are very strong? Those trees are the strongest. But if a tree grows up big in an environment where there's no strong wind, and suddenly a strong wind comes, what happens? Traffic jam. <laughs> because they fall down, right? And that's the nature of our lives. If we don't go through trials, we are not strong. You know, in fact, the way that God has made us spirit, soul, and body is that when we are tested, when we, when we go through adversity, it makes us stronger. But when we do not face adversity, we become weaker. We become a lembe, lembe, you know, in Malay, right? Uh, I know this is true physically because, you know, uh, every year my weight is the, about the same, but I realize that my muscles are getting smaller. <laughs> even though my weight remains the same, it's because, you know, even though I'm doing regular exercises, I'm not pushing hard enough. And, uh, you know, the, the experts say, you know, once you are in your 50s, 60s, you know, you have to start pushing against resistance. You do resistance training, which means, you know, it's hard work. You've got to lift weights and so on. And I hate going to the gym. <laughs> All right? I'm an outdoor person. So, but at some point of time, I may have to do that because, you know, with no pain, no gain. <laughs> if I want to avoid the pain, just do what I enjoy, you know. Uh, the result is I will, go I will grow physically weaker. So believers will grow from trials. And that alone should give us reason to rejoice so that when the trial comes, we can say, now I have the opportunity to become stronger. And it also proves that God ap uh, approves of us. I mean, it's a, it's a sign of God's approval. The fact that God allowed Job to go through that trial is because 
God was very pleased with him, and God was so confident that Job would pass the test. Can I say amen? So if God allows you to go through a trial, it's not because He hates you, it's because He loves you. It's because He's so proud of you. He's so confident that you can do it. Adversity tests the strength of our faith. The word test there is the act of proving something's worth. It's only after something is tested that it is valued. Would you buy anything that is not tested? Almost every product that we use has some kind of symbol on it, right? That says it has met certain standards. Are you with me? Now, even a little thing like a cup like that, you know, if it's to be sold, let's say, you know, in the European Union, they will have like all electronic products will have a symbol that says CE, right? Have you seen that before? Okay. In Malaysia, if it is to be sold in Malaysia, it has to have S-I-R-I-M, right? Sirim. So you will not buy any product that you know, doesn't have a seal of approval that says this has been tested and it has passed the test. That means it has value and it's reliable. So how do we know we have real faith if it has not been tested, how do we know we have genuine faith? Adversity is like a stress test, pushing us to the limit, and sometimes it reveals our deficiencies. You know, some of the, the tests that they do on products in the initial stages will fail. And then they'll find out why it failed. And then they will do it again until it passed. Then they can start to sell the product and after they get the seal of approval. So when we are tested, sometimes it reveals there are some deficiencies and it will cause us to depend on God, to cry out to God. That's why trials are so useful because we don't know what we still need to work on until we go through the trial. The trial will reveal certain weaknesses in our lives. And then when we push through, we develop endurance, staying power. Endurance perfects us so that we will become complete and we will lack nothing. The final goal, however, is not endurance. We are not developing endurance for the sake of endurance. The final goal is maturity and completion in Christ. You see, many Christians love Romans 8.28. Because it says, all things work together for good to those who love God, right? We like that, but you know, what's the whole point for God to work all things for good? If you read on, it is so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. Why is God working all things for our ultimate good? The ultimate good is that we become like Jesus. All things are not good. Some things that happen to us are bad, but they will work for our ultimate good, which is to be Christ-like. Can you say amen? So James is saying the same thing. You will be complete. You will lack nothing. And this is why perhaps he jumps to the next theme. By the way, there are something like 12 themes that run through the book of James. So... You know, it's like going one round, then comes back to it again. So in verse 5, he, he changes topic. 
If, but if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When do we need wisdom? When life is smooth and everything is going fine? No. We need wisdom when things are not going right. Are you with me? When we can't understand what's going on in our lives, when we are going through adversity, we need wisdom to rightly assess our adversity. That means, you know, we need wisdom to understand why is this happening to me? Oh, is it because I've done something foolish? Is it because I've disobeyed? Or is this because God is actually trying to do something deeper in my life which I can't understand right now? We need wisdom to decide how to respond to the adversities of life. And God is the source of such wisdom. God will answer our prayers for wisdom. He will not shame or humiliate us when we ask for wisdom. He is glorified when we confess our dependence on Him. In fact, He's delighted when we ask for wisdom. And He is more than enough for all our needs. Can you say amen? You see, our response to suffering actually reveals our hearts. Because at the point of suffering, either we will trust God or we will doubt God. Are you with me? Our response will reveal what's going on in our hearts. If something in our hearts, if we have been holding on to this idea, actually God is not very good, you know. So something bad happened to us. See? I knew it. See? So it reveals what's really in our hearts. Our response to suffering reveals our hearts. In our suffering, actually God is inviting us to trust His goodness. Do we trust His goodness? Yeah, it's easy to trust God's goodness in good times. But what about bad times? In all our trials, God is still in control. And He uses adversity to build us up. So, faith rejoices in the midst of adversity because faith believes that the adversity is for our good, our ultimate good. Not necessarily our present good or temporary good, but our permanent good. And it is for God's eternal glory. Can you say amen? Amen? Such faith will see us through even the most difficult storms of life, the most difficult times. Now, many of you would have heard the story of Joni Erickson, right? You, at a, as a teenager, around 18 years old, active sportswoman, you know, she loves to ride horses, hike, play tennis, swim. Her father was a champion wrestler. And at age, age of 18, she took, she went to swim and she, she jumped, you know, dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She didn't realize that there were some rocks under the water and she broke a fracture uh, between the fourth and the fifth of the cervical. And instantly, she became a quadriplegic. She was paralyzed from 
the shoulders downward, okay? And she was in excruciating pain. It was indescribable pain, you know, that she went through. It was not just like, you know, it's just numb, you know, you don't feel anything, but she was in terrible suffering. And she went through two years of uh, intense rehabilitation. Now, imagine you are uh, 18-year-old. Your life is ahead of you. You enjoy riding horses. You are active sportsmen. And now you cannot do anything for yourself. You have to rely on other people to do everything for you. And you are in pain. And so she went through anger. She was angry. Why is this happening to me? And uh, she was depressed. And she had thoughts of suicide. And she even doubted God. But during that period of occupation, uh, therapy, she, she went through occupational therapy. She learned how to paint with a, a brush between her teeth. And she discovered, you know, new talent, so to speak, right? And uh, she started to sell her paintings okay? and write books as well with a pen between her, her teeth. Now, of course, you have modern technology now. It's a long time. I mean, we, we have voice recognition, right, to date. But over the last 50 years in this state, unable to use her hands and feet, she was joyful. She accepted this as God's purpose for her life. And she wrote... 40 books. She recorded several musical albums. And she even starred in a movie about her life. I want to ask, I mean, uh, and she advocated for people with disabilities. You know, she's a, a powerful advocate. I want to ask how many of us in our able-bodied life <laughs> have written 40 books? Huh? have become advocates for people in need. She has done more than normal people in these 50 years. And in these 50 years, she has also had to endure two fights against cancer. Now you see, this is a very, very hard life. And she's still going on strong. She's probably about 70 now, okay? And when you look back over her life, and when she looks back, she comes to realize if not for what happened to her, she would not have the open door to touch so many millions of lives through her books, through her song, her music, through her movie, and through her advocacy. You see, because she suffered, and she's still suffering, she can identify with people who suffer in a way that you and I will never do so. Because, you know, we are able-bodied people. Are you with me? So that's a purpose in that. I, I had a glimpse of that, you know, when Pastor Lydia broke her, her ankle and she had to be on a wheelchair to push her around, you know. And shortly after that, uh, we, we were in the airport and I saw an elderly person, you know, trying to get onto the, to the escalator, you know. Immediately I jumped, you know, to assist and to 
kind of like, you know, make sure he doesn't fall down the escalator because I was sensitized to the people who could not move and had to rely on others. You know, even though I had not gone through it myself, but vicariously, <laughs> I went through it because Pastor Lydia went through it. Are, are you with me? Suffering sensitizes us to other people who suffer. And so perhaps that was God's purpose for her. We don't know. I mean, but we know that she has an audience of millions of people who listen to her. Uh, and I look back over my own life. She was 18 years old. She dove. Her head hit the rock. And her life changed forever. I was 46 years old. Went for a bike ride. Intended to jump 5 feet, but ended up jumping 20 feet. Landed on my head. Okay? On my head. Directly, like a pencil. Now, I could have been Joni Erickson. And in my case, it would be Isaac Chan. Tada! <laughs> I'll be gone. You know, I could have died or at least become you know, a, a, a quadriplegic. But, you know, apart from excruciating pain <laughs> and, a twist, and a sore neck for a few days, the x-ray showed, you know, there was nothing wrong with me, you know. And I, I was able to do everything else normally after that. Okay. Now, why did God not spare her and why did God spare me? I could have ended up worse than her. Okay. But I don't have millions of people listen to me <laughs> because I am a normal, healthy, able-bodied person. You see, God is sovereign. We cannot choose in that sense. Are you with me? Right? He, he knows what He's doing. And if he allows suffering, he must have a purpose. Sometimes we will never understand it in this life. And so we must just learn to, to humble ourselves and accept you know, that in this life we don't know everything. And then he changes topic. James verse 1 verse 9. Now the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position, but the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation because he will pass away like a wildflower on the meadow for the sun rises with its heat and dries up the meadow. The petals of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuit will wither away. Happy is the one who endures testing because when he has proven to be, he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Now again, back to the Jewish mindset. Huh? Wealth was the measure of one's piety. That means, you know, the more money you have, the more righteous you must be. The more godly you must be. The pious were expected to prosper, the wicked to suffer. And that's why when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it was so shocking to them. Now, it's not shocking to us, but it was shocking to the Jews who heard it at that time. Because remember, this rich man lived in the palace of a house, and the poor man, the beggar, Lazarus, was begging at his gate. Right? And when, when, the, when the rich man, or when the beggar died, he was taken to Abraham's bosom and he was being comforted. And they are asking, how can that be? 
he's so poor because he's not righteous. That's why he's poor. Why why is God rewarding him? And then when Jesus says the rich man also died and he was taken to a place of torment and they're asking, this cannot be. He's rich because he's righteous. How can this happen to him? You know, it is like upside down theology. They couldn't understand this. But Jesus wants both the, uh, James wants both the rich and the pious to see their circumstances from an eternal perspective, just like Jesus. This life is not the end of the story. There is chapter 2 and beyond. And James is telling the same thing here. He says, don't just look at your uh, present circumstances. Look at your present circumstances from an eternal perspective. And the fact is that over the last 2,000 years, there have always been Christians who are pious, who are poor, as well as Christians who are pious, who are rich. You say, how come? And most of the rich Christians live in the West. Most of the, and now in the East as well. And most of the poor Christians are in the Middle. We call them Middle East, Africa. You say, why is that so? Of course, there are many, many reasons, right? But perhaps God is sovereign in this as well. We don't understand in this life. You see, what is true is this. In this life, the pious does not always prosper and the wicked does not always suffer. In this life. So we can understand when James says that, you know, the, the poor man should take pride in his high position. Because Jesus also said the same thing. Luke 6.20 Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Right? So, it doesn't matter if you are poor in this life, you know, you have done your best, you still remain poor. It's only a short time of suffering. You will go to eternal bliss. You will be rewarded in heaven. We can understand that. But what is the meaning when James says, let the rich man pride in his humiliation? Huh? What does that mean? Rich man's the rich person's pride should be in his, in his humiliation. Why? Because he will pass away like a wildflower of the meadow. That means, you know, in the midst of his pursuits of life, you know, he will wither away. That means no matter how hard he's trying to get more money, no matter how many millions and billions he has accumulated, when he dies, he leaves everything behind. Cannot take one cent with him. True riches are not earthly riches. True riches are heavenly riches. That's why Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is. is what? Gain! The world says you're crazy. When you die, you lose everything. When you die, you cannot use your money anymore. You cannot go for holidays. You cannot enjoy, you know, the, the good things of life. You know, when you die, you have lost everything. How can you say to die is gain? The world has no idea of that because the world lives for today. 
the non-Christians, right? But Jesus, uh, Paul says to die is gain. Why? Because death opens the door to true riches. No wonder most of the songs of heaven are, were written by poor people. <laughs> the African-Americans in slavery in America wrote most of the songs of heaven. <laughs> Rich people don't think of heaven so much <laughs> because life is quite good here, right? But James is saying both rich or poor Christians should be looking forward to the real, true riches that wait for us when we come, when we arrive in heaven. And Hebrews 11, 13 says the same thing. These all died in faith. Even people like Abraham, who had so much wealth in life, never stayed in one place because he realized he is moving on. He's on a journey to the, his final destination. These all died in faith without receiving the things promised, but they saw them in the distance and welcomed them, acknowledged that they are strangers and foreigners on earth. Can you say amen? We are foreigners on earth. So the rich man must realize wealth is nothing compared to the true riches that await. And then James changes topic. <laughs> Verse 13. Let, me, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. All generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. By His sovereign plan, He gave us birth through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Now, why is He talking about adversity, uh, about temptation? You see, in adversity, we may be tempted to blame God. And there's this kind of logic that's a bit distorted. Sounds like this. God is... In control of everything, he's sovereign. Can we say amen to that? Amen? And so if he is sovereign and he allows this adversity in my life, then God has brought adversity into my life. And in adversity, I'm tempted to act in an ungodly manner. I'm tempted to you know, give in to temptation uh, and do what is wrong. And if I yield to temptation, then I sin. And therefore, God is the source of my temptation. If I fail, it must be God's fault because He led me into temptation. <laughs> you see, it's a very a simple logic, <laughs> except it's flawed, okay? <laughs> James is trying to tell us here, never blame God when you are tempted because God cannot tempt anyone and He is not even tempted by evil. God tests us, but He never tempts us. There's a big difference between the two, okay? Temptation comes from deep within us and not from God. There is something deep in our fallen human nature that makes sin so enticing. And John Owens put it so clearly. He says, temptation and, and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before, Temptation begins with desire and intense 
longing for that which God had forbidden. In, in other words, there was already a desire that was created for that something which we feel like, oh, I, I, I need it, I want to have it. And it's unique to every person. It's temptation actually is drawing something out of us that was already there. All the time it was already there. Okay? Yesterday afternoon I was going to buy lunch and from Island Glades, the coffee shops, and so I decided I'm just gonna go and buy lunch. And you know, this is durian season, and Pastor Leader told me, you know, Saturday, Sunday, don't buy durian, don't eat durian. You're gonna meet people, you're gonna pray for people, you know. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I'll be very obedient. So so I went, and as I walked to the economy rice store, I passed by this stall. <laughs> and it drew something out of me. Something that was already inside. <laughs> and before I knew it, I had already committed durian. <laughs> I bought durian and I went home and I ate durian. <laughs> okay. Now, Does the durian have power? No. It was only drawing something that was already inside of me. Okay? And my daughter, to my daughter, durian has no attraction whatsoever. In fact, it has the opposite effect. The smell drives her crazy. Okay? The smell <laughs> makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right? So, you know, it's a very individual thing. Some people are drawn to something and some people are like, ah, what's this, you know? Uh, it's not even a temptation. I mean, like, uh, some people who, who love coffee, right? Uh, you know, they have already had three or four in the day and then they pass by Starbucks and then, you know, oh, I must have one, you know? And their hands are already shaking from caffeine, you know, but they say, I must have one, <laughs> okay? Uh, but to other people, you know, it's just coffee, you know. I mean, I love coffee. I only love the smell. So I enjoy coffee for free. <laughs> Other people pay for it. <laughs> All right. So it doesn't have the, that magnetic effect on me, you know, like something, I mean, like some other uh, foods, so to speak, right? Some people are tempted by, you know, uh, some men are tempted by women. Other, for, for other men, it's like, you know, yeah. It's not, not a big deal. Some are tempted by money. They will not pass up a, an opportunity to make a quick buck, even if it is illegal. Others, like, you know, I can do without it. Some are tempted to, uh, towards vanity and fame. Others say, I, I, I don't want to be famous. You know, but it has an effect because it's drawing something out of you that was already there. It was already there all the time. And the word drawn away and enticed are actually fishing and hunting metaphors. Look at the fish. Why is it opening its big mouth? Why is the worm so tempting? Because there's something in the fish that says, I want the worm. Right? Why is the mouse sniffing out the cheese that's so close to danger and death? 
because there's something inside that says, I want it. Okay? And James says, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. So what you have is that the result, sin and death are the result of a sequence of events which begins when we entertain a wrong desire and fail to reject and resist it. That means the moment the thought comes, that is the moment that it either becomes sin or not sin. To be tempted is not sin. All of us will be tempted in some way. We are human, right? We are tempted. But to entertain the thought is to step into the process, to start the process that will end in death. So, it's better not to start the process because it's very hard to turn back. So James is trying to tell us here that the temptation will try to draw something out of us. And this is because we have a fallen nature inherited from Adam and Eve. Apart from Christ, we are not wise enough to see the poison of sin. Apart from grace, we will have a foolish thirst for poison. You know, it's like, yeah, I know it's poisonous, but it's so delicious. Sweet poison. Huh? And actually, sugar is a poison. <laughs> and there are so many people who love sweet things, you know. Their motto in life is this, life is short, eat dessert first. It's sweet, but it's actually sweet poison, <laughs> okay? And of course, I mean, it's harmful only to your body, but sin damns our soul, and you're talking about something that's very serious. So we need the wisdom of God, because by nature, we hate what we should love and love what we should hate. But God is in the business of changing our nature and giving us godly desires. Can I say amen? You see, Ezekiel... 36, 26, 27, in the new covenant promise, God said, I will plant a new heart and new spirit inside of you. I will take out your stubborn, stony heart and give you a willing, tender heart of flesh. I will put my spirit inside of you and inspire you to live by my statutes and follow my laws. God says, I will give you new desires. I will give you new desires. This is the gift of God, the new birth. Can you say amen? With a new birth, we can have new desires. So James says, you know, don't see God as the source of what is evil. Rather, He's the source of everything good, all generous giving. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or slightest hint of change. You see, God is good. We, we sing about it. We cannot stop singing that God is good. He doesn't change. He's sovereign. By His sovereign plan, He gave us birth through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of all He created. It was God's initiative that brought us to new life. That gave us the gift of faith to believe in Him. And 
if there is any basis for faith and stability, it is in knowing that God is good. That God is unchanging and sovereign. Can you say amen? Amen. And He will finish the work He started in our lives. And one day, He's going to redeem all of creation from the curse of the fall. He starts by redeeming us. We are the first fruits. More to come. And then James changed topic again. Verse 19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. How many of you think this is easy? Huh? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We, are, we, are, we don't like to listen. We like to talk. <laughs> A counsellor after many years of counseling, was talking to his friend. And a friend asked him, you know, how can you survive all these years? You're listening to people's problems, you know, nine to five every day. How can you survive this? And the counselor smiled at his friend and said, do you think we are actually listening? <laughs> and we pay them money to listen. <laughs> you see, we are not good at listening. Even when people are talking, we are thinking what to say already, right? So James says, no, no, we, that's not the way. That's not wisdom. You know, listen carefully and then process and then only speak if necessary and be slow to get angry because human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So put away all filth and evil ex excess and humbly welcome the message implanted within you which is able to save your souls. But be sure... You live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. For if someone merely listens to the message and does not live it out, he is like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. For he gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of person he was. But the one who, who peers into the perfect law of liberty and fixes his attention there and does not become a forgetful listener... But one who lives it out, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, what is James saying here? Okay. I just jumped over a little bit. All right. The Bible is a book to be read and practiced. It's like a mirror. When you read the Word of God, it will expose our sins and weakness and needs. To be doers of the word, we must do something when God convicts us. This morning, how many of you look at the mirror? Any of you? Come on. Look at the mirror. Okay. How many look at the mirror two times? <laughs> okay. Now, when you look at the mirror, most likely you saw something you didn't like. Something that accumulated through the night, right? Either from near your eyes or elsewhere, right? And so... After that, do you just look and say, okay, I'm ready for the day, and you, and you come to church? No. When you saw something, you have to do something about it, right? And James is saying, no, some, some Christians are, are the opposite. You know, they look in the mirror of God's Word, and the Word of God convicts them, and then they walk away and they forget what kind of person the Word of God has revealed them to be and they are deceiving themselves. So, we have to do 
the Word of God, not just read the Word of God. Okay? It's a foolish way to live. You know? And no amount of Bible study will produce any fruit in our life if we do not put into practice. Okay? And one of those applications comes next. Pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father, is to care for orphans and widows in their misfortune and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You see, the test of religion and spirituality is how we respond to people in need. It's easier to intellectualize our faith than to incarnate our faith, than to actually show the love of Jesus through our lives. It's easy to talk. It's difficult to do. The test of spirituality is how we respond. So I want to quickly summarize what James has been trying to tell us in the first chapter. Number one, joyfully embrace adversity as God's good work in our lives. He is not trying to destroy us. He's trying to strengthen us. Can you say amen? He promises wisdom to respond to our suffering in a godly manner in such a way that you know, the suffering will produce our good and His glory. All right. Number two, all true blessings are from God. And the blessings of God include things that cause us pleasure as well as things that cause us pain. Both can be blessings from God. Are you with me? But we only like the first kind. <laughs> okay. All true blessings come from God. Number three, never blame God for our failures in the midst of our afflictions. God tests us to purify and strengthen us. He does not tempt us. So it's a wrong belief that, you know, if only my faith can grow to the point where I'm strong, if I only have enough faith, then God is obliged to deliver me from all suffering. James is trying to tell us, number four, instead of praying to escape from trials and suffering, pray for wisdom and pray in faith. Don't doubt God's goodness and God will give you wisdom. Let's pray. Must we bow? I want to pray for two groups of people. The first are people who, brothers and sisters, who are currently going through a trial. And you're trying to make sense of it. And you realize this morning that you need wisdom to see, understand, Interpret your trial, your suffering, your hardship correctly. And you need wisdom and strength to respond in a godly way so that God's purposes for your trial will be accomplished, your good and His glory. And so if you need prayer for this, as I heads about, would you just indicate by lifting your hand, is there someone here like that? Say, Pastor, pray for me. I need, I need some more wisdom in what I'm going through, yes? Anyone else, quickly? Yeah? Quickly? Anyone else? Yeah. Okay. There could be more, but we'll pray in a while. The second group of people are those who are going through some physical affliction right now. You have a sickness in your body, 
And James tells us also that if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. So, for some of us, when we go through physical suffering, God is able to heal us. And He has ordained that it will come through the prayers of God's people. And so, if you are in this second group, as we sing the closing song, I want to invite you to come forward and receive prayer because God wants to touch you. So right now, those of us who have raised our hands, or even if you didn't raise your hand the first time, you want to receive prayer for wisdom, for what you're going through. It could be a difficult time. It could be a painful time. It could be a perplexing time. If you want to receive this prayer, would you just put your hand on your heart right now? I'm going to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, you see what your children are going through. And you see the struggles in our lives, trying to make sense of what's going on. Father, you say that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask without wavering. Lord, we will not doubt your goodness. We believe that no matter what happens in our life, you are still good. And you are still the sovereign Lord, working out your good purpose in our lives for our ultimate good and for your glory. Father, we pray that you will give wisdom, insight, give understanding to our brothers and sisters here who are struggling and who are seeking wisdom. You say, you will not humiliate us. You are delighted when we ask for wisdom. God, give us a new insight to see what we are going through from your perspective, from a godly perspective. And give us the strength so that we will respond in a godly way. So that your purposes in our lives will not be defeated, but will be accomplished through the good and through the painful times. Father, we thank you that the good work that you started in our lives, you will complete. You will not leave us unfinished. And we thank you that you will give us insight and understanding this day and you will impart strength to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.